The text for Pastor John's sermon this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Probably the issue that the elders have spent more time on in recent years than any other issue is the issue of how to provide pastoral care for about 1,100 people scattered all over the Twin Cities. you notice in verse 4 here, it says that the chief shepherd is going to come one of these days, perhaps very soon. And when he comes, there's going to be a reckoning with his under-shepherds for reward or not. And so there's a sobriety and an earnestness that comes over this whole issue when you see it in the light of eternity. We've been convicted in recent years, especially by texts like Hebrews 13:17. Your leaders keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In texts like Acts 20, 28, be on your guard and for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And you can hear the kind of seriousness that is in Paul's voice when he says that to the elders at Ephesus. They are overseeing and caring for the church, which he bought with his own blood. You don't play games here. You're not cavalier about this. You're not breezy. You will be called to account. The great shepherd will come. How did you handle and work for and shepherd and serve those whom he bought with his own blood. Now, over the years, it's been four or five we've been working on this. What has begun to emerge is a kind of district pastoral care eldership. And Tom Steller is going to come in a few minutes and make some closing comments about the details about that. And you'll see something in the comments there about it. The idea is that you divide the Twin Cities into districts. You have an elder in each district and deacons in each district and small group leaders. And as a team, they labor to shepherd the flock of God together with the staff here. The aim of this whole thing that you're going to be learning more about is to build the people of God. Through the Word of God, through prayer, through all the manifold ministries of care and encouragement, to build the people of God who have in their hearts and in their minds a vision of God. Holy, glorious, gracious, wise, sovereign, all-sufficient, all-satisfying. People who have a vision of God and who savor that vision in worship, strengthen that vision through all the manifold ways of nurture and encouragement, and spread that vision of God through deeds of kindness and local evangelism and world missions. So the goal is to be a church after the New Testament, with people whose hearts are filled with God, ministering to each other, reaching the world. 
What I want to do this morning, before Tom comes, is put this in a biblical context that Rick just read to you, 1 Peter 5, and it became more relevant than I thought it would be as I pondered it. Let's begin verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. I ask the question, here he is at the end of the letter, got one more chapter to go. He's been talking about all kinds of things, about suffering and about being good citizens, about submitting to the powers that be, being good husbands and wives. And and I ask myself the question, why a special word to the elders? Paul didn't do that. Paul has no special word to the elders in his letters. Why did Peter, at the end here, feel like, I've got to say something right to the elders? Now, the clue that gave me one answer, at least, to that question is the word therefore, which unfortunately is totally missing from the NIV. Very hard to preach if my people only sit with NIVs in their lap, because I'm going to base half this sermon on a word that is not in your version. And that happens over and over again with the NIV. So I just plead with you, if you like the NIV, also have another version which is more literal like the NASV or the RSV or the Old King James. There is a therefore here. Therefore, I exhort the elders. In other words, something's been happening or something's been said, and therefore I exhort the elders. So I backed up. What is it that has been happening that makes him feel like he wants to say this particular word to these elders? So back up with me to chapter 4, verse 12. We'll just get ourselves up to speed here in the context. There's a fiery ordeal coming on these churches. He's writing to churches in five provinces. And there's a a fiery ordeal coming upon them. And they're not supposed to be surprised by it as though it's something unusual. See that in verse 12. Then in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says that... uh, It may be that we Christians will have to suffer with Christ and then we'll rejoice at his glory when he comes. Now, that juxtaposition, that putting together of joy and glory and suffering with Christ immediately reminded me of verse one of chapter five, where he says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness of the sufferings and I'm going to be a sharer in these glories. I thought, hmm. Hmm. Fellow elder, witness to suffering, share in the glory. He just referred to that in verse 13 of chapter 4. Christians might need to suffer with Christ, and then they can rejoice in the glory that's going to come when he comes. There's something going on here, perhaps, in this link-up of suffering and glory as he moves toward an exhortation to the elders. You see it? Even more clearly, I think, in verse 17 of chapter 4, this fiery ordeal is not merely demonic. It may be demonic. Persecution is, in one sense, always demonic. But look at the way Peter now describes it. For it is time for judgment. This is God's work. For judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Now, those verses have to do with the whole church. We all see that. This fiery ordeal that involves persecution or something is God's judgment that begins at the household of God and then moves out to the world, experienced in the church as a purifying, refining fire, and experienced in the world as a punitive, condemning fire. What's it got to do with elders? Here's something really unusual emerged. I went back to a couple of Old Testament texts that several commentaries suggested to me that Peter might be drawing his ideas from, and I found an absolutely amazing thing, that not only does the judgment of God begin with the household of God before it hits the world, it begins with the elders before it hits the people. Even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. In other words, it's sort of like a, the, the blood on the lintel, the doorpost. Put a mark on these men who are weeping over the church. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity. Do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, women, Do not touch any man on whom is the mark. You shall start from my house, my sanctuary. Same wording as in Peter. Judgment begins at the household of God. You shall start from my sanctuary. And here's the next phrase. So they started with the elders who were before the tent. Now, here's another one. Malachi, this one we know because it's in the Messiah. Know this, words will be familiar to you. Another description of how, in the end, there's a, a messianic cleansing coming. It came first in Jesus. I think it comes repeatedly as Jesus arrives in judgment on his house and on the world from time to time. Malachi 3, verse 2 But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, Peter knows and taught us back in chapter 2 that the priests, the sons of Levi, are you. You're all priests. You're a holy priesthood. We saw it last week. But elders reading this text and reading Ezekiel can't help but hear the ominous implication that when the refining fire comes on a church, on the people of God, on Jerusalem, on Zion, it comes with the leaders first. It comes to the leaders first. Now, if that's right, I'm kind of on beam with Peter's thinking here. 
that this fiery ordeal that is coming and begins with the household of God, not only begins with the household of God, but in the household of God begins with the leaders and with the elders. They need to be refined and purified and burned and persecuted, as it were. Maybe that's the reason for why he says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. In other words, in this context, the elders need warnings and the elders need hope. It's a wonderful and fearful thing to be an elder in the house of God. If the elders are to lead the church into strength and glory, they will not do it without leading the church through the fire first. There will be fire first for the elders before they get any glory, any prerogative of leading a pure church into strength and into glory. Elders will not stand above a suffering church and, and, and make suggestions about here's the way to handle fire and here's the way to handle fire and do this and do that. They will stand with the church in the fire at the head as they move into the purifying, refining fire. Isn't it interesting that Peter here calls himself in verse 1 a fellow elder? And in this context, when I hear him say, I am a fellow elder, I, I don't hear that as, as an exalted phrase. He could have said, I'm an apostle. He wanted to sound exalted. I think what he was saying was, I'm going with you in the fire. I've been in the fire. I've tasted the fire. I'm a fellow elder with you. So that when he says, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ, I think some people jump automatically to the conclusion that means he was there and he saw it. But when you say you're a witness to something, it also means you tell about it and you illustrate it. You show it. You bear witness to it in yourself. And that may be here also. I'm a martus. The Greek word for witness is martus, from which we get martyr. Because the final witness was the experience of suffering with Jesus as you lay down your life for Him. Therefore, what Peter wants the elders to see here, I think, is that there is fire coming on the church. It will be painful. The judgment is serious. No one will escape. And it will hit the elders first. Now he gives them the warning. What kinds of things do elders need to hear in view of this reality? If to be a leader in the church is not to be above the church, watching the church suffer and kind of being like uh, air traffic controllers during a crash, but rather in the plane, saying move this way and that way and feeling the smoke and the dip and the dive and going first, what do they need to hear? Well, it's amazing. Peter gives three warnings, one great word of hope. He warns against three typical failures of elders in this situation. He warns against laziness. He warns against greed. And he warns against pride. Or, to put it another way, 
He warns against the lust for ease. I've known pastors who get so tired of the ministry, they pour all their time into their hobby. Spend all their evenings in the basement uh, doing woodwork. 20 hours a week on a hobby. They're just burned out. They can't take it anymore. And they just drift over into life of ease. Or he warns against lust for money. We've seen enough of that. He warns against lust for power and prestige. Let's just take these one at a time and I'll show them to you. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God who is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly or voluntarily according to the will of God. Now, I'm just guessing here that behind that word, not under compulsion, there's something that's distracting these elders or could distract them so that they need some goading. He's saying, don't be like a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to do your pastoral work. Don't be like a mule who kind of just stands around and doesn't know what to do and needs some external goad. Come on, be willing, be voluntary in your work. And so I thought maybe it's lazy. Could, it could also, though, be fear, especially in this issue of suffering and the refining fire that hits the elders first. Maybe they're saying, well, shoot, I can do without that. I'd rather just have it easy. And if that's the mindset, the elders will stop being elders. They won't take it. Or they won't sign up in the first place. It's too hot in the kitchen. And so maybe fear is a, a disinclination. And he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be the kind of person who needs external compulsions. And that's why when Tom stands up here and we... We're praying this morning God's going to raise up 12 qualified, gifted elders in this year to complete our vision. We're not going to twist any arms. We're going to state it like it is. We're going to give you a packet of information that thick. And we're not going to try to make it sound easy because uh, it isn't. And you have to do it willingly if you're going to do it at all, if you're going to be biblical. Warning number two against greed. Verse two, near the end there. Shepherd the flock of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, we don't pay our lay elders. We pay our vocational elders. That's me and David Livingston and David Michael and Tom Steller at this point. And so that word is especially for us. Don't begin to do your work as elders and shepherds for the money. Don't begin to think of this as a job. You just do it so you can support your family and send your kids to school and pay the bills and live in your house and take a vacation. It's just a job. Don't, he says, don't think like that. Or even worse, don't begin to cast your eyes about how you can use this thing as a way to make more money, book royalties, honorariums for weddings and speaking engagements, watch out, put hedges around you to protect yourself from that kind of abuse of your shepherd role. 
money is very dangerous. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.5? He said, uh, beware of making godliness a means of gain. How can godliness be a means of gain? Easy. Easy. There's a circuit to get on. There are books to be written. There are ways to to turn pastoral life into money. There is. You can do it. And he says, don't do it. Don't do it. Third, he warns against pride. Only, I, I missed the positive half of that. But rather with eagerness. Back up, back up. Don't do it for money. Do it eagerly. Which reminded me of, of uh, Acts 20.35, when Paul's addressing the elders in Ephesus. He said, remember, brothers, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Keep that in your mind. Remember that. Or Hebrews 13.17, let the elders do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, number three. Shepherd the flock, yet not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is a warning against pride or the lust for power and prestige. What is pride? I don't know how you would define pride. Sin of pride. A lot of people use pride in a very positive way. It's almost never a positive word in my vocabulary. I just try to find other words. Pride is when the heart stops feeling, I can do nothing without Jesus. When the heart stops feeling, without me, you can do nothing. And then, the second step is to start to feel a kind of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And the third step is that the heart of self-sufficiency and self-reliance then starts to feel indispensable. And when you start to feel indispensable, you start to put yourself out there as indispensable, and you start to want people to tell you you're indispensable, and you begin to live for praise and for accolades and for affirmation. That's sort of the dynamic of the emergence of the pastoral part of pride. Very dangerous and very Real. It says, lead, you must lead. Verse 5 implies leadership. But lead with a servant lowliness by example. So when the fiery trial comes on the church, you lead by example. You don't escape it. You don't run from it. You don't take your ball and go home. You don't rise above it. You walk right into it. And you take it. And you illustrate to the church how to be purified by fire. Or, you're not an elder. Three warnings. One closing word of hope. An amazing thing. I mean, you can imagine the elders hearing this and saying, look, if the fiery trial is coming, if it takes this much pain, as I see in chapter 4, verse 12, to burn the laziness out of me and burn the greed out of me and burn the pride out of me, then I'll just, I'll just be a layman and, and not, not be an elder. 
when Peter hears that, here's what he said. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Yesterday, Viv Grigg, uh, here giving a seminar on the poor, and he quoted Luke 14, 13, like this. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. You'll be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now that's stated every one of you, but it comes especially to the elders. There are, there are dimensions of ministry that are thankless. There are dimensions of parental ministry, parental ministry in the home that are thankless. There are dimensions of Sunday school ministry teaching that are thankless. There are dimensions of your work and how you labor in the world that are thankless. And there are dimensions of every ministry, including the eldership, which will not get enough earthly strokes to make you feel it was worth it. And when that happens, Jesus is saying, that's not the point. The point is heaven. The point is eternity. If elders begin to think that we should have strokes, that we should have reward here, horizontally, on the earth, to make our ministry worthwhile, we've taken our eyes off the chief shepherd. We've taken our eyes off of heaven. The ultimate foundation of our motivation and our endurance and our strength and our joy is the chief shepherd is going to appear and he's going to say, well done. And what was done in secret will be rewarded by our Father who sees in secret. I'm going to invite Tom Steller to come. Our prayer, my prayer as Tom comes, is that God is at work here to establish us as a church and to raise up another dozen or so elders from among us. And I invite you, while Tom is taking a few minutes here to close us, to pray to that end.